0: So from 1923, let's leap to this year and the next generation of smart astronomers. Meet Ashley Schoenfeld at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles. She's preparing a PhD, but still managing to do the research of a veteran. Here's how.
1: I've always really liked astronomy, all sorts of space-related things. I loved the space shuttle missions. All the astronauts were my heroes. And then I got to college and I was like, "Well, I'll do physics because that's like, yeah, physics, that's the right thing to do. I hated it. Uh, <laughs> but then I found geophysics, which is basically an applied physics field to geology. So basically it's a mix between geology and physics. And once I had a focus for the physics and the math, I'm like, oh, I actually really like this. And Rocks, which, you know, everybody says, well, rocks are dumb. They're not dumb. They're actually really cool. And our Earth is a big, dumb rock, and our Earth is very dynamic and interesting and important. So I started studying that, and then I got very lucky. I got a summer internship at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. My first project was to map the moon of Saturn-Titan. So I had radar data, and I needed to basically create a geomorphology map with the radar data, which basically just means it's kind of categorizing the terrain, looking for patterns of erosion, sediment, you know, classic kind of mapping stuff. And I loved it. I loved the people I was working with. I loved the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I thought Titan, this just really strange world was just so fascinating. Then I, learn more about the Cassini mission, about the other things that were studied, and I just, yeah, I loved it.
0: Cassini mission was fantastically successful, but take me to Enceladus, if that's how I pronounce it.
1: Yeah, so Enceladus is one of the most interesting and most important revelations of the Cassini mission. Titan was one, and Enceladus, I think, is the other. So Enceladus is a mid-sized moon of Saturn, and it is extremely geologically active. When I mean active, I mean uh, the order of hours, it is. it has geysers at the South Pole that are shooting just tons of icy material into space. And this was unknown to scientists until Cassini came around. So they knew Enceladus was there, they knew it was a very bright object, and they knew it was co-located with the E-ring. So the E-ring is a very large, diffuse, icy ring of Saturn, unlike the other rings because it doesn't have a very good structure. It's very diffuse. And once since Cassini came around, they're like, oh, this E-ring is co-located with Enceladus because Enceladus is creating the E-ring. So as it shoots out this icy material, it's actually building this ring system.
0: Okay, and you've been looking further and further as to what it might be made of, with the material coming out. What have you found?
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot of different kinds of important measurements made of the plume materials. So the outer part of Enceladus is an pure icy crust. I say pure, but there's probably some contaminants, but for the most part, it is water ice. And the interior of Enceladus, under that icy crust, is actually a liquid ocean, and I mean liquid water. And that ocean has been sampled, thanks to the fact that all these geysers are shooting out material at the South Pole. So Cassini was able to do some measurements through the plumes, as well as sampling the E-ring, and they found that, yes, it is a water ocean, It has salts, just like our oceans. There's potassium and sodium salts, pretty standard. It has a pH of about 10, and it has organics, lots of organics. And the kind of minor tragedy of Cassini is that it did not know that it would find these kinds of complex organics, which means it wasn't built, the mass spectrometer wasn't built to measure at this sort of size. So it knew it was there, but they didn't know what it was. There was also a lot of hydrogen found, hydrogen gas, which means something active was creating this gas, like hydrothermal vents, perhaps. And then lastly, it identified silica grains, nano-sized silica grains, which is another chemical-derived product from a hydrothermal system. So these lines of evidence pointing at not just the crust being active, shooting out geysers, but perhaps at the seafloor, where the ocean meets a rocky silicate core, that perhaps at that core interface there's also hydrothermal vents, just mm. like on Earth.
0: Just like on Earth, and of course those vents were accused by some people including, who knows, perhaps Darwin, as being the place where life first began, because those elements you put together, not least water and those organics, have led to the suggestion that this moon may be the place where some life could exist. Is that what you're looking up?
1: Yeah, there's a reason why Enceladus has come out as this very interesting and important object in the solar system. NASA wants to return to Enceladus. That's one of the priorities in the coming decade. And it's just like you said, because there's water, there's energy, and there's building blocks, potentially, which are these organics. A lot of what we are kind of looking for in the solar system is like, well, we don't know exactly how life emerged but at least we kind of know what life needs at least based on our understanding of terrestrial life you know you need organic molecules carbon hydrogen nitrogen oxygen etc and water and energy which a lot of our life is based on solar energy but there is bacterial life that uses chemical energy or thermal energy that at these hydrothermal vents where there's no sun whatsoever but they still have these very rich ecological niches
0: and what have you been working on, really, technically, to uh, explore this?
1: Yeah, so I have been doing a little bit of theoretical fluid dynamic modeling. It sounds big and scary, but it's, it's not that. It's just math. So we know there's these observation of silica grains. They're about 2 to 10 nanometers in size. Now, if they came from the seafloor, that means they had to travel quite a long way, tens or so kilometers worth of of ocean, and eventually ejected at the geysers. So the question of our paper is, how did they get through the ocean column? What mechanism is driving that? And our hypothesis was, well, convection. If there's a lot of heat at the seafloor, I mean, we think there might be hydrothermal vents. We know that the South Pole is is a hot spot then perhaps there's enough heat that's actually driving turbulence Mm -hmm. in the form of convection. And if you have this thermal, buoyant water, maybe it can actually entrain those grains and Mm -hmm. take it to the surface. And what we found is, yeah, actually it's pretty likely that you're having enough turbulence generated by heat to entrain these sized grains.
0: So presumably this would be as it might have been in the vents on Earth, if that theory is okay, without the need for oxygen or anything like that. you get your energy from some other source, chemical source perhaps?
1: Yeah, you basically would have mineralogy, the chemistry of the hot rock interacting with the water that you can actually have life exploit. It's also just all that thermal heat, a lot of emergence of life theories are based on this idea that almost like a early form of photosynthesis, right? Photosynthesis uses sunlight, but maybe if you had a different kind of photosynthesis, like a thermal synthesis of sorts, you're using heat energy or like, you know, far infrared as opposed to visible wavelengths. So the idea is that maybe thermal hydrothermal vents could support extant life.
0: Well, okay. When NASA goes back there later, who knows? This decade, they won't be able to land or land anything, you know, even a rover. So, how could they tell? How could they? T- what sort of tests would you like them to do to find out whether some of your suppositions theoretically stand up?
1: Yeah. So the cool thing about the results of our paper is that we're shown stuff from the seafloor gets to the surface and gets ejected out. So you don't need to drill into the ice. You don't need to go into the geysers and fish all the way down to find whatever you are looking for. That stuff's coming to us and we just need to have the right instruments in our follow-up mission to measure that. So the right kind of mass spectrometer, the right kind of dust analyzer, things that have the proper bandwidth and spectral resolution that Cassini didn't have. But again, just wasn't expecting what to find that. But now we know this stuff might be there. And now we know what to look for. And and we have based on lots of studies, like this molecule looks like this in the spectra. And now we can start to look.
0: Were you lead author on this paper? I was, yeah. And you haven't got your PhD yet. That's pretty sensational.
1: Yeah, I guess so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is. I promise you, it is. (laughs) And what about Titan? Have you gone back there at all with your work?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I started out with Titan, so I have created a comprehensive geomorphology terrain map of the surface. We actually had a nature astronomy paper come out a few years ago that was like, here's the first global map of Titan. But I've actually done much more level of mapping than that. So that was sort of a global, low-resolution map. I've done it at the high resolution. So that's kind of like the follow-up, and we've been publishing on that. Good luck with your work. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Yes, a superstar in the making. Ashley Schoenfeld is a graduate student at UCLA, already with her first published paper and soon a PhD.